Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. If you're visiting with us, I've been preaching through the book of Philippians, and we have been going through Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. And the theme of these verses is found in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The connection of these verses is found in these three words, in this way, in verse 1. So stand firm in the Lord. In this way, or your translation might say, so stand firm in the Lord. The Apostle Paul is telling them how they are to stand firm in the Lord. And so I'll be reading today verses 1 through 8, and we'll focus our attention on verse 8. Hear the word of God. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche, to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. One way we stand firm in the Lord, steadfast and immovable, resolute and firm, unwavering and unfaltering, strong and tireless, is by cultivating godly thinking, by meditating on the truth, by dwelling on that which is consistent with the character of God. Dwell on these things. And we're not just talking about a mental exercise. The Apostle Paul is saying dwell on these things for the purpose of those things shaping our lives and giving us direction in our lives. So again, in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, whatever is true, and just think about the words, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Or as the English Standard Version says, think about these things. Or the New King James, meditate on these things. Let these things fill your mind and govern and direct your life. As we consider Philippians 4 verse 8 this morning, we will follow these five headings. First, the devaluing of the mind. The devaluing of the mind. Secondly, the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Thirdly, the effect of salvation on our minds. Fourthly, the command here in verse 8 to holy thoughts. And then lastly, by way of application, cultivating holy thoughts. So first consider the devaluing of the mind that is so prevalent today. We live in a day in which many people diminish and devalue the importance of the mind. The emphasis today is on how you feel, not what you think. The ways people express beliefs are couched in the language of feelings, not thoughts. So people often start their sentences with these words. I just feel like rather than I think or I believe. A common question is how does that make you feel? 
Or people ask, does it feel good? Not, is it right? People generally believe that if it feels good, then it must be right. And if you tell a person that he is wrong about something that he, quote unquote, feels good about, then you're the one that is wrong. In the world today, right and wrong is not determined by objective truth outside of oneself. But in the world today, right and wrong is determined by how one feels subjectively within oneself. And even among professing Christians, feelings are often given more weight over the Bible and the authoritative word of God in determining moral right and moral wrong. There's an increase of Eastern mystical religions in the United States where the mind is to be put in neutral, so to speak, or the mind is to be emptied in order to gain some sort of mystical consciousness that unites you with the world around you or with your inner self. Yoga and channeling and the like are gaining popularity, and it's even found in churches. Pentecostalism is filled with the devaluing of the mind. The late John Wimber of the Vineyard Movement once said, God offends the mind to reveal the heart. Rodney Howard Brown said of the so-called Brownsville Revival in Florida, quote, you can't understand what God is doing in these meetings with the analytical mind. The only way you're going to understand what God is doing is with your heart. Now, he said that because this so-called revival, along with what has been called the Toronto Blessing, was marked by supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit through things like people on their hands and knees barking like dogs. They claimed it was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit when people are laughing uncontrollably for no reason. For long periods of time, some claiming to be, quote, drunk in the spirit, where they stumble around and talk as if they're inebriated. And Rodney Howard Brown has been called the Holy Ghost bartender. Now, we know from Scripture and evaluating those things from Scripture that on your hands and knees barking like a dog is not a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So the only way to get people to accept this is to say things like, you can't understand what God is doing with the analytical mind. You have to devalue the mind to cause it, the, call these things manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Many discard doctrine and truth in favor of experience and emotionalism. But you can mark it down. When the mind is devalued and emotionalism is elevated, truth is always devalued. The Bible is always devalued. And in the face of all this, God's word says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That verse alone demonstrates the second point, which is the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Our thoughts are important. Our minds matter. So much of the Christian life is directly related to what we think about. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Ungodly thoughts lead to ungodly behavior. Dwelling on sinful things yields an ungodly, sinful way of life. Sinful thoughts lead to sinful living. But when our minds are fixed on what is true, what is honorable and right and pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent and worthy of praise as defined by the Bible, then we're on a path that leads to sanctification and Christ-likeness. We can connect the dots directly from our thoughts to the direction of our lives, whether our lives are on a path of righteousness or a path of unrighteousness, whether we're standing firm in the Lord or falling into worldliness and sin. And so for this reason, our thoughts 
what we think about, what we meditate upon, what we allow into our minds through the eye gate or even into our minds through the ears is vitally important in the Christian life. And so what occupies your mind? What has taken up residence, so to speak, in your thoughts? What kind of thoughts have made their home in your mind? What do you choose to dwell on? These are important questions because it's true that your thoughts govern your life. Now, it's also true that your desires govern your life, your affections, what you love governs your life. But we often desire what we dwell on. What we allow to take up resonance in our minds becomes the desire of the heart. So what you choose to think about, what you choose to dwell on, what you choose to muse upon will govern your life. Now, what do I mean by govern your life? Well, to govern means to regulate, to influence, to steer, and to direct. If we purpose to dwell upon things that are true and honorable and right and lovely, of good repute, excellent, and things worthy of praise, then our lives will be directed. They will be governed by these things. And in the context here, Philippians 4, we will stand firm in the Lord. But if we choose to dwell on those things that are false, whatever is dishonorable, unrighteous, unholy, morally hideous, disgraceful, and shameful, then our lives will be directed in those things, and we will surely fall. You see, dwelling on things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and excellent, worthy of praise, will lead you down a path of righteousness. But if you dwell on things that are dishonorable and unrighteous and unholy and morally hideous and shameful, then it will lead you down a path of unrighteousness. There is a direct correlation between the mind and whether or not you're on the path of righteousness or unrighteousness. And one leads to spiritual stability. The other leads to falling and stumbling. It's like the man in Psalm 1. You're familiar with it. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Those things don't occupy his thoughts. But then it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates, he thinks about, he dwells upon He dwells upon those things that are right and pure and holy from the moral law of God day and night. And the result is, Psalm 1 verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. There's a picture of spiritual stability. A picture of standing firm. It is directly related to what you think about, what you meditate upon, and what you delight in through your thoughts. So do you see how important the mind is in the Christian life? Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. Yes, with all your heart and with all your soul, but also with all your mind. Jesus said that sinful actions often originate in what we entertain in our thoughts through the eye gate. So he said in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. Psalm 101, verse 3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. And the psalmist knew that the eyes were a trigger for the mind and for his thoughts. And to set wicked and worthless things before his eyes was to put them in his mind, which would quickly take root and lead to sinful actions. 
we can see how important the mind is in the Christian life. The Apostle Peter emphasizes the importance of the mind in the Christian life when he wrote in 1 Peter 1 verse 13, Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. And then in 1 Peter 4 verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For the purpose of prayer, he speaks of being of sound judgment, preparing your minds for action. Again, these verses speak of the importance of the mind in the Christian life. Our minds are to be sound. They're to be alert, vigilant, and prepared. We need mental acuity. Mental acuity means that our minds are sharp. We need to be able to think clearly and have sound judgment. We need the mind of Christ. We might call it spiritual acuity of the mind. If our minds are not sound, if our minds are not spiritually alert and prepared, then we will be devoured by the adversary. That's why Peter went on to say in 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, have a spiritual mental acuity. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, Peter says. How do you resist him? By feelings? No. He says, but resist him firm in faith. Firm, he says, in your faith. We resist the devil by being firm in the faith. That is grounded in the truth. We don't resist the devil by feelings, but by being firm in faith. That is by truth comprehended, believed, and acted upon. That is why the Apostle Paul, when teaching the church how to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and how to stand firm against the schemes of the devil in Ephesians 6 speaks of what? The Christian armor. And what is the first piece of armor that Paul mentions in Ephesians 6 verse 14? Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You have to put on the belt of truth. And that begins with comprehending and understanding truth with the mind so that the heart and the life desires and affections are directed and governed by truth. Here in Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul begins with whatever is true. Think on, meditate on, dwell on the truth. This is how you resist the devil. This is how you resist being conformed to the world. This is how you are transformed and sanctified. And brethren, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. And so we see the devaluing of the mind in the world and even in the church today. But we see the importance of the mind in the Christian life throughout the scriptures But to further understand Philippians 4.8, we need to also understand the effect of salvation on the mind. The effect of salvation on the mind. Listen to what the Bible says about the mind before salvation. Romans 1 verse 21. For even though they knew God, that is, they had a knowledge that he existed, they did not honor him as God or give thanks But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Futile in their speculations. The word speculations here, the the Greek word is the idea of thought and thought processes. Their reasoning. They knew there's a God. God revealed himself in Romans 1 in creation so that it's evident to all that there is a God. But they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They don't honor him as God. They don't give thanks. And as a result, they become futile, empty in their reasonings. Their mind is affected. That's why Romans 3 verse 11 says, there's no one who understands. The word understand simply means comprehends. The mind has been affected by sin and the fall. 
It is so affected by sin that the glorious good news of the gospel seems foolish to the unsaved person. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Their estimation of what we now have had our eyes open to understand and to believe, that we would say it is the power of God unto salvation. This is good news. Their estimation is foolishness. And why? 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the what? The minds of the unbelieving. So that they may not see the light, understand and comprehend the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I had a conversation with someone yesterday who came to my door, the Jehovah's Witness, whose mind was blinded to the glorious gospel of Christ, preaching a false Christ, another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Minds blinded. And no matter what I would say, the eyes were veiled and blinded. What I said was good news was not. They would say it was false teaching. That's foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 sums it up this way of man in his unsaved state, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He can't understand them. Just turn briefly, if you will, to the left, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 19. These verses emphasize the the mind before salvation. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 19. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you, talking to believers, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. How do they walk in their lost, unregenerate state? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Here we have a description of the sinner in his unregenerate, unsaved state. And in verse 17, it says he has a futile mind. In verse 18, a darkened understanding. He's spiritually ignorant. He's alienated from God, spiritually dead. And he has a hard, calloused heart given over to all kinds of sins like sensuality and impurity and greediness. In verse 17, it says that unsaved sinners walk, quote, in the futility of their mind. Again, their mind, their intellect, their understanding. Here we see what we call the noetic effects of the fall. Noetic is just a word that comes from the Greek word that means the mind. And it means that sin has affected our minds. That they walk in the futility of their minds. The word futility means nonsense. It's the idea of emptiness. Apart from God's work of grace, the mind is bound to this futility and it says in verse 18 being darkened in their understanding their minds their intellect is is bound by darkness there's a spiritual ignorance that characterizes them it doesn't mean here that they're not intellectual a person can use his mind to do some great things and invent great things, but yet be futile in his thinking in regard to the most important things. Thoughts about sin, man's spiritual state, thoughts about God and the way of salvation. So some of the most intellectual people are the most foolish people when it comes to spiritual things. So a person can show his great learning and intellect about the universe And then chalk it up to chance and a big bang and evolution. This is the effect of sin on the mind. But then that leads to a calloused heart. In verse 19, their hearts are callous, that is, without pain, 
without sensitivity, having no shame. The, the mind and the conscience is seared so as to be free of guilt. They call right wrong and wrong right. And so this is the mind before salvation. The Bible says it's sinful, depraved, defiled, foolish and darkened, futile, blinded, hostile toward God, Colossians 1.21. And this is why man in his fallen state cannot understand the things of God and cannot reason his way to God. Sinners need divine revelation and divine grace. And so in salvation, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, opens blind eyes and enlightens depraved minds. In the words of 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, It speaks of God granting sinners repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Once blinded by sin, ignorant in their speculations and futile in their speculations, a mind that's been darkened, now the Holy Spirit opens their eyes so that they have a knowledge of the truth. And so in salvation, God enlightens the sinner's mind that he might comprehend what the sinner is able to truly understand understand apart from being born again and so in the salvation of a sinner now we know the truth we understand the truth the writer to the hebrews quoting the prophet jeremiah says this of the promise of the new covenant hebrews 8 verse 10 for this is the covenant that i will make with the house of israel after those days says the lord i will put my law into their minds God in salvation illumines the mind so that we know and understand the moral law of God so that now it's not just written on tablets of stone. It's not external, but now it's written upon the heart. It's written upon the mind. And there's a new mind. Now we comprehend truth. We know God and we can live in light of who God is. Now we can love God and his law with our minds. We can comprehend the law of God and delight in it. And we grow in holiness, in sanctification by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So this is what God does in salvation. He takes a foolish darkened mind and he illumines it. So now there's an understanding of the truth and of the gospel, and of Christ, and of God. So that now he delights in those things. Previously, not wanting to think about those things. Trying to run, like the illustration I used last week of of pulling up a rock and seeing the insects run from the light. In John 3, 20 and 21, sinners run from the truth. They run from the light, lest their sinful deeds be exposed. But now we bask in the light the glory of God in Christ. And we want to meditate and think about and dwell on those things. We're not trying to hide ourselves from those truths. We're not filling our minds with those things contrary to what is described here in Philippians 4.8. Now that's what we desire. And so we choose to dwell on these things. So we see in Philippians 4.8 this command to holy thoughts. It is a command. It is now a choice as believers that we must make. Having our minds now enlightened by the gospel, now to grow in sanctification, to glorify God, we make a choice to dwell on these things. Now in the construction of the Greek here in Philippians 4.8, it's seen in the translation. Paul begins with the, just naming these things. And then says, dwell on them. To dwell on means to think about, to calculate, to ponder. One commentator explained the word translated dwell in this way. The verb think about or to dwell upon means to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, and to allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way of life that is to be lived. We are to meditate on, to prize as valuable, and to be influenced by all that is true, 
All that merit, merit serious thought and encourages serious mindedness. All that accords with moral purity. All that is fragrant and lovely. All that brings with it a good word that speaks well. Whatever is gen, of genuine worth. And so the idea here and the emphasis is this word is not just thinking about, but it's thinking about pondering upon it that it might, again, direct our lives. Now, what is it that we are to dwell on? Paul gives a list of things. Whatever is true. Whatever is true. In John 3.33, it says God is true. In 1 John 5 verse 20, it says Jesus who is true. God is characterized by truth. In Revelation 15, verse 3, righteous and true are your ways. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1.14 says, this one who became flesh and dwelt among us was full of grace and truth. So that when Jesus, when he walked this earth, spoke, before he would say certain things, he would say, truly, truly, I say to you. God is true, and the Word of God is true. Psalm 119, verse 151, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. So the opposite of this is, would be to dwell on things that are false, things that are lies. But when we de- dwell on the truth then the mind is shaped by what is true. We have then moral discernment and we develop godly affections. In Psalm 119, verse 128, it says, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Therefore, I hate every false way. See, as we dwell upon what is true in in God and what he has revealed to us in his word, then we begin to have godly affections for those things and it results in having what I preached on in our corporate prayer meeting, abhorring what is evil, hating every false way. So we're to dwell on what is true. Then he says, whatever is honorable, that is those things are of good character, that are worthy of respect, that are noble. This word is used of of people, of deacons in 1 Timothy 3.8. And of older men in Titus 2 2, that they are to be, it's translated, dignified. Their lives are to be honorable, of good character, and worthy of our respect. But here we're to dwell upon those things that are honorable. And again, God is the embodiment of that which is honorable. The opposite is that which is profane and shameful. Again, today, people make idols and even are unashamed to call it that American idol they make idols out of fools they revere that which is dishonorable and profane Paul says whatever is honorable that is consistent with the character of God he says then whatever is right the achaos is the Greek word that is the word for righteousness Holiness, that which is morally just. And again, this characterizes God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, Moses says, His work is perfect and his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteousness and upright, or righteous and upright is he. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, Psalm 145, verse 17, and also his word is right psalm 19 verse 8 the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart so again this is true of god and his word then he says whatever is pure pure here means those things that are without moral defect and therefore acceptable this is the word from which we get the word holy and of course god is thrice holy Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. We speak of his holy word because that which proceeds from him and 
the truth that he has given to us is also holy because it comes from a holy God. The opposite that is that which is unholy and sinful. Then he says, whatever is lovely, that is that which is amiable and delightful. Psalm 135 verse 3 says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. His name is lovely, not meaning just the name that we hear or we say, but the name meaning who he is, his character. God is lovely. He is what is pleasant and agreeable. The opposite is that which is morally ugly, and I use the word earlier hideous that which is sinful is to be hideous to us we should not dwell on those things we should dwell on what is lovely and then he says those things are of good repute that is commendable praiseworthy that which should be highly regarded because of its godly virtue and the opposite would be that which is deplorable that should bring us grief that's difficult for us to think about. We, we talk about this. It's hard for me to think about those things. I don't want my mind on those things because some things are deplorable and they bring sorrow to our souls. No, this is something that is commendable, that is of good repute that we should dwell on. He goes on to say, if there is any excellence, this word for excellence again means goodness and uprightness. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why did God make us such? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When we speak of the glory of God, the sum total of all his attributes and his being, God is the highest excellency. We proclaim his excellency. And then Paul says, if anything worthy of praise, that which is worthy of being commended. Do you see the theme here? All these things describe God, and they describe God's word, which is a mirror of his moral excellence. Choose to dwell on God himself and the things that are consistent with his character and his truth. That is the command here. That's how you stand firm. So let me just apply this briefly. There's so many applications to this, but lastly, cultivating then holy thoughts. How do you cultivate these holy thoughts, this godly thinking that will help you to stand firm in the Lord? First of all, guard your mind. Guard your mind. Flee from those thoughts that are sinful. And the application here is is far-reaching. I've made many applications to this before. Your entertainment. What are you entertained by? Just start there. If what entertains you, TV, movies, that which is on the internet, social media, music, if it is not what is described here, then don't think on those things. Flee from those things. I think about, we have to be careful just in the world that we live in. You, you, you turn on the radio and you want to listen and find out what's going on in the news. And some of you listen to so-called talk radio and you listen to it. And it, you know what it's filled with? Galatians 5 verses 19 to 21. The deeds of the flesh. Just things that are sinful and sinful complaining and fear and anxiety that we talked about last week in verses 4 and 7. And we wonder why we're having such difficulty having the peace of God. Wonder why we're having difficulty when we're tempted to sin. Why we're we're having difficulty not being lovers of sinful pleasure because we're filling our minds with so many things in the world that are completely contrary to the nature of God. We dwell on anger and murder and sensuality and wonder why are we so easily enticed by sin? We need to guard our minds. Have you ever heard of the phrase garbage in, garbage out? 
garbage in, garbage out, G-I-G-O. I don't know if they say that. If it's if you just say G-I-G-O, I'm not in computer science and those kinds of things. But it, it's a term, a concept that's common in computer science and mathematics. The quality of output is determined by the quality of input. If you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. <laughs> In, process, in a processing system, the data's quality coming out cannot be better than what you put in. So if you put garbage in, garbage comes out. The same is true of the mind. You put garbage in, garbage comes out. If you put garbage in your mind and that's what you dwell on, you think, that's what you begin to desire and that's what you begin to be governed by in your life. And now... You're not standing firm in the Lord. And in some cases, not only you're not standing firm in the Lord, but your life doesn't even approximate anything that is of the Lord. What garbage are you putting in your mind? There is an effect. We can see in the context here. Why this follows verses 6 and 7. When he says in verse 8, finally, brethren, it's not a conclusion. The word finally here. It would be better translated, furthermore, brethren, let me expand a little more. Don't be anxious about anything, but instead we should pray. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard, protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So with your minds, dwell on things that are true. Dwell on things that are honorable and right, because if you don't, then of course you're going to be anxious. What are you choosing to dwell on through your phone, through your social media, through your internet, through your TV, your entertainment? So how do you cultivate holy thoughts? Guard your mind. Secondly, meditate on Scripture. Meditate on Scripture. How is the mind renewed and transformed with truth? Specifically, the written Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. The Word of God must shape our thinking, must shape our minds. The Word must wash our minds that we might be conformed to the character of God. We need to meditate on His precepts. Again, back to Psalm 1 verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord and in His law He meditates day and night. The Bible speaks of meditating, but it's not the kind of meditating you see when people are saying, oh, they're trying to empty their minds. No, biblical meditation is not the emptying of the mind, but the filling of the mind with divine truth. Dr. Albert Muller said this, the biblical concept of meditation on the word of God does involve an emptying, of course, but we must empty our minds of ungodly and unbiblical thoughts, of desires for sin and resistance to the reign of God in our lives. But that emptying never involves an empty mind. Instead, it involves a mind in which unbiblical thoughts are replaced by the truth of Scripture. Not a blank slate of meditation that revolves around the self. Biblical meditation is the exercise of dwelling on the truth and looking at it from every angle. It's like a couple that gets engaged and they buy, the young man buys that diamond ring and he puts it on her finger and they just gaze at it. They turn it in the light and in the sun and want to see the sparkle. And meditation on the truth is the mind looking at every angle Every sparkle of the truth, the beauty of God, the beauty of his word. Meditate on the scripture. Matthew Henry said, what we love, we love to think of. Think on the truth. Meditate on God's word. Spurgeon, you've heard me say this before. I love the quote He speaks of meditation in this way. He takes a text and he carries it with him all day long. Your mind is occupied with, 
the truth of God's word, you take it with you. So how do you cultivate holy thoughts? Guard your mind. Meditate on scripture. Thirdly, meditate on the character of God. Meditate on his excellencies. The God who is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and amiable and excellent and worthy of praise. Psalm 24, verse 7, the psalmist says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To do what? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. Again, in the context here, anxiety, we're tempted to to fear, to be anxious. We meditate on his truth. We're tempted to sensuality, In sexual morality, we meditate on the holiness of God, the purity of God, God's good and amiable design of marriage between one man and one woman in that monogamous lifetime relationship, faithful to one another. You meditate on those things God has created that are true, that flow from the character of God rather than those things that are unholy and ungodly, sensual and immoral. Meditate on the character of God. And then finally, recall the works and wonders of God. We have an example of of Philippians 4.8 in Psalm 77, beginning in verse 11, where the psalmist says, I shall remember, that is, I'll choose to recall to my mind in order to meditate on, to dwell upon, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember, choose to recall to my mind, in order to meditate on and dwell upon, what? Your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. And you have made known your strength among the peoples. See, this is recalling the works and wonders of God, dwelling on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure. Meditate on God's works and wonders in creation. But the most excellent thing to dwell on is God's work in salvation. Let this be your meditation. Let this be what you dwell on. Be like a compass that wherever you turn it, the arrow turns north. Whichever way you go in all your things, whatever you do as you go your way, let the compass of your heart and mind always go toward the gospel and meditate on those things. And in this way, by setting your mind on these things for the purpose of delighting in them, and letting them direct and govern your life. You'll guard your soul from sin and will glorify God. In this way, you'll stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So final application, two parts. First, to believers. What are you struggling with? What sins are you beginning to be entangled by, enslaved to, Because your mind is fixed upon things that are ungodly and unholy rather than dwelling on those things that are true and honorable and right and pure. Make a choice. You're unsteady. Spiritually, you're in danger. You're not standing firm in the Lord. No. Dwell on these things and flee from those ungodly thoughts and the avenues to those ungodly thoughts. But unbelievers, for those of you who are not in Christ, your thoughts, as I describe the mind of the unbeliever, there's the futility of your thinking. And even when you hear things about God and things that are true, honorable and pure and right, and those things that are excellent, you quickly want to turn your mind from those things. And you want to fill your mind with other things. I want to, some of you even now might be thinking, I'm just ready to stop hearing about this. I can't wait to get my mind on whatever sins or sins that you want to dwell on or whatever things you want to make 
priority in your life so that you can run from the light. The things you're pursuing will end in destruction. What you need to do is seek after. It's like Pastor Devon was teaching this morning. Again, you have to seek wisdom. And the scriptures give us the wisdom that leads to salvation. If there's any inkling of conviction in your soul, then dwell on and run to the truth of God's word and the gospel. And when you're tempted to turn your eyes and your mind to something else, I don't know, I want to think about that, then repent of that and turn to the word. Seek him with your whole heart. Dwell on the things of the gospel. And cry out to him, as Pastor Devon said today, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on, think on these things. And by the grace of God, in this way, will stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I thank you that the scripture tells us that as those who have been saved by your grace, that we have the mind of Christ. Our minds have been transformed. They have been enlightened so as to truly understand the gospel, to believe the gospel, to know you, the one who is true, to know Jesus who is the truth, to love your word, But, oh, Father, how we need to continue in sanctification, to dwell on these things, that they might govern our minds, that those things might then govern our affections, our desires, that then we might be those whose lives are governed by truth and by you and by our Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for some who are here today who or are in spiritual danger because they have been dwelling on things and thinking on things and occupied with things that are the opposite of what this verse says. And therefore their lives are being governed by that which is sinful and unholy and ungodly. Father, I pray that if there are believers in that category today, they would repent by your grace. Lord, look to Christ and dwell on the things of the gospel and may that lead them to repentance. And Father, I pray for any who are here today who have not believed on Christ. Lord, enlighten their minds to the glorious gospel that there is a Savior who saves from the futility and the foolishness that characterizes their minds, their thinking, their hearts, and their lives. One who saves from the wrath that our sins deserve, the Lord Jesus. May they see the beauty and the loveliness of Christ as Savior and believe upon him and rest in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.